Hey, Mike. Hi, Caleb. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty well. I would imagine you're pretty excited. I am. I am. I am quite excited, actually. Uh, yeah, it's a couple days removed now since the big news, which we'll get to. So it's uh, it's set, it's sunken in. And uh, all right. Yeah, we'll get to it. Uh, what are you drinking, though? Good. Good. Uh, well, apropos of our. Uh, well, I don't know if this is really uh, appropriate. I'm drinking something called the Honeymoon Cocktail. Oh. Uh, well, so, you know, since the, the, the first Model 3 just rolled off the lines, uh, you know, at least one person is in a honeymoon period with their Model 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am having a Honeymoon Cocktail. It is uh, apple brandy. Um, what else? Curacao. Uh, oh, man, I've forgotten what. Lemon juice. And uh, there was one more thing in it. I don't remember what. Oh, uh, Benedictine. Oh, okay. So that that's probably uh, more detail than you needed. It's all right. I think my lemon was a little bit sour. I think I might have stretched that a little too much. So that that kind of it's always hit or miss with the fresh lemons when you're doing uh, one lemon at a time. Mm-hmm. I kind of envy the uh, the cocktail bars that can actually put lots of lemons together and juice them all together and kind of even out the ups and downs of the uh, the flavor. There's probably a metaphor for life there. <laughs> Diversification of of sourness. Exactly. Exactly. You want to kind of get that median going. Uh, how about you? What are you drinking? I am having uh, one of my one of my top favorites, the Water Lily. A top you, favorite. You turned me onto it. I think it's in my top five. All right. If this was MySpace, a cocktail MySpace, that would be in your top eight. Yeah, I would put that as my top eight favorite brand. In case cocktails. any olds are listening, they might know. <laughs> Kids now wouldn't know. Uh, I yeah, I guess that's true. I never even really used MySpace that much, but I knew it existed. So, you did you really use it though? No, no. I, I like to okay. joke about it though. Okay. I'm, I'm pre that. I, I'm like gopher and, and finger and, and I have a dot plan and, you know, old school. Yeah, I started with GeoCities, so I'm not that legit, but. No, no, you're, you're a youngin. Yeah, I had yeah. a, a WYSIWYG I, I, yeah. experience. I would, I would, I'm going to go back to my BBS and make fun of you noobs. <laughs> Good luck. Have fun. Um, so uh, this has been a eventful, some might say historic week because. Because. Uh, the first Model 3 has rolled off the production lines, and it is going to the one and only Elon Musk. Is it? He's, yeah. Oh. Yes. Uh, so on Saturday, July 8th at 5.11 p.m. Pacific for history purposes, a tweet was issued by Sir Elon Musk himself. Not really a sir. Uh, production unit one of Model 3 is now built and going through final checkout. Picks soon. So he wasn't there. Like, so there's the video of it in the lot, like where we were standing when we were there for our tour and someone else is in it and people are taking photos of it and it all has this kind of lo-fi vibe to it. And there's no Elon Musk to receive it. I, I kind of expected a little more fanfare. Yeah. So he, he did end up shoot, uh, two photos did come out on his Twitter account. So one around 9 PM Pacific time and then another around 9:45. And yeah, there was a video of, of a person who was, um, there <laughs> supercharging cause they, they did this photo shoot right in front of the Fremont factory and they have public superchargers there, as you were mentioning. So it's a public area, semi-public. And um, so I'm pretty confident the person driving is Doug Fields, uh, who is the VP of automotive engineering. So he's sort of number one uh, in terms of the vehicle production stuff. He's number one in terms of number twos. Yeah, he's number one, number two. Uh, He was actually giving a lot of the test drives at the Model 3 unveiling event. Um, So that's where I sort of got familiar with his face, I guess, uh, watching those videos. And then... (laughs) Not creepy at all. And then... uh, (laughs) That was before you got the poster on your wall. Yes. Um, And I also believe in this video, what's happening is there's a guy from Tesla who is using his iPhone in portrait mode, and I believe he is FaceTiming with Elon, because I'm pretty sure I hear Elon's voice in the background. So I think what happened is Elon was either on his way back or was still in Australia from the solar... uh, Sorry, the, the power pack announcement in Australia and wasn't on site. So they didn't um, have enough time to complete the tunnel from L.A. to San Francisco for his car to just be shipped to him? Doesn't seem like it. And I think uh, then they had their internal photographer because you could see a little tripod. But it, it, it was not like a crazy photo shoot. I think it was all just natural light and just the 
the, I expected uh, more pomp and more circumstance. I, I got neither. I, I think they, they just sort of actually had finished it and were ready to do some sort of photo and knew that people would want to see a photo because he had teased that it was going to be done on Friday. It seems as if it actually was done a day later, but not that big of a, a deal. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they wanted to get something out there. And It's uh, interesting that they didn't do it in the back, though, where they, are, they have a little more privacy up by their test track in the back. Yeah, I think the biggest reason is they wanted the big Tesla logo in there. Oh, yeah. Because in both of the photos, Tesla is extremely prominent. So that, at, at that hour, too, the sunlight is only on the, the, the other side of the building would have been in shadow, too. Yeah, because you can see the hills behind it, which is pretty neat in the first photo, uh, or in the second photo, rather. And um, yeah, so Elon was actually not first in line. He was actually uh, second in line or a little further back. And one of the board members, Ira actually gifted him his position in line since he was the first to put down the full amount of money uh for apparently for elon's 46th birthday so what a, the arcane detail of what, what a suck happened. up <laughs> <laughs> he's been a, he's been an early investor in them as well so he's he's been there for a while um so i, I think what i wanted to dig into a bit was what what has happened leading up to this process because that we've we know that the release candidates have been tested and and all that but a little bit more detail of sort of what goes into that process and then also what's going to happen next as they start to ramp up from what we can see from previous uh model s experience and then other car makers who have talked about their experience ramping up production because not ma not many people actually go on the record talking about this uh it's sort of closely held how this whole process works <laughs> Trade secrets. Yeah. And so there's did a bunch of research over the week on um, as many documentaries as I could find since those have both <laughs> the audio and visual uh, and then reading a bunch of trade publications about uh, detailed specs and job descriptions for lots of different jobs that I didn't know existed. Um, <laughs> so can you can you clarify? Um, so when you say release candidates versus like this one that just came out uh, on Friday, like what's the difference between how those are, are manufactured? Yeah, so the what we believe is that the uh, release candidates were produced um, across some sort of pre -pi like some pilot manufacturing process, which may have been on parts of the line and may have been in a different facility that were more hand built. The intention of those was that they are using production intent parts and production intent tooling but that doesn't mean they're necessarily produced on the manufacturing line because there's the parts that go into the car which you like okay which radiator are we going to use which seat are we going to use which switch are we going to use which panel are we going to use so you can get those parts as close as possible to what's actually going to be used in the real car so as time went on they started using more and more accurate parts and then there are parts that tesla manufactures like the body panels and those can have different levels of design completeness, um, but like, okay, we're actually going to adjust the front or we're going to adjust this curve, right? And so that design change has happened and then they will produce that body panel to look that way. But at some point, and, this, and that some point happened around March um, of this year, three to four months ago, we heard that the design was sort of complete, that pencils were down and they were moving to this release candidate process. And so from that point on, uh, we believe that they started using uh, the, they started actually using some robotics and some of, and as much as they could of the production process, so the production paint. Point, they probably have like the dies set. What pencils down probably means like the, the final dies are in place and they're gonna start stamping out the, the panels as, as they will be uh, in the final version. Yeah, they, they didn't get the final dies until very recently, um, oh. until the last earnings call, which I guess was a couple months back. Um, so, yeah, they've been tuning those since the last earnings call. Um, so that might have been one of the last pieces, actually, for those to be uh, the real final dies. But they may have had uh, they, they may have been getting those pieces from the actual uh, die maker. Uh, because the die maker is going to make sample dies for themselves. So they may have sent them actual uh, cast parts um, or at least stamped parts, not cast. Um, and then like the tires and stuff and the wheels could all be tested. And so we, 
the intention of those release candidates is actually that they are trying to replicate the current intention for what will go into production. And this production point it, traditionally in the automotive world is called job one. And that's when they reach this point where all of the not all of the known major issues have been worked out and the executive team and the board signs off on that final sort of release candidate set of changes and feature set to be what will be the item that actually goes to production. But in in concurrency with that testing process on the engineering side and validating those cars, they're also starting to spin up the actual production line. And depending on how the car is going to be rolled out, if it's going to run on an existing production line, like in an existing factory, or if it's a whole new line, there'll be different levels of sort of manufacturing pre-production work that's going to happen. And so there's sort of an interplay where sometimes parts will come off of that pre-production line and sometimes they won't. And it just depends on the manufacturer. So I can talk through a couple of different examples that I learned about uh, yeah, recently. Yeah, let's dive in. Yeah, so, so going back to like the Model S, uh, which was in 2012, National Geographic was granted access. And there's actually a documentary of what they, how Tesla got to actual production with Model S. And it's on YouTube in a, um, you know, fell off the truck kind of variation of the of the movie. Um, it's freebooted. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and a couple notes I found sort of interesting. So one was that they started training the robots for Model S a year and a half before production started. So I think... <laughs> I'm imagining like the uh, tra- training sequence from Rocky where he's like, the robots are mm-hmm. chasing the chicken around and punching the side of beef. Yeah, so... They, Robot uh, training has started. So that means both that they, um, they had some of the robots there in advance but also what happens is that the training can because it's a computer program it actually can happen in a computer and not have the physical robot that the robots are simulated in software as well and so uh as i also learned that the majority of the of the robot programming uh for for a lot of the tasks is actually done in simulation uh in advance of the robots ever being delivered and so you sort of work out what's going to happen, sort of what the what the movements are going to be, what it's going to do, how it's going to interact with other robots, like in the in the body welding section, for instance. They've got multiple robots. Some are going to be moving the pieces into place. Some are going to be holding them. Some are going to be welding. So you can work out some of those movements. And um, then once Caleb, you... Caleb, should we contact Tesla HR? Because uh, I know that in our midst, we have a SimCity expert here. Yeah, I love I love SimCity. Uh, You're a fan of all the simulation games. Maybe maybe you've uh, this is your calling here. You should get in there. Well, I I don't I don't think that uh, I would be quite well suited to that. But it is fun. It it is a uh, it is interesting. And they do have um, an open job rec right now for uh, body and white robot uh, engineer. So if I refer you, can I get a referral fee? I think you have to work there already, so I think that might be tricky. Seems impressive. Um, so, so, so they were they were working on the robots in advance. So we know that, and quite confident based on what other uh, car companies have described and the folks who provide software and provide robots that that's pretty common. And one particular example they gave was that they they had the robots doing the movements, but they actually had the robot uh, on site actually get trained by a welder who is a professional welder. And it was sort of interesting because this professional welder was there with a robot operator, human, uh, operating the robot. The the human welder would uh, position the have the operator put the robot in the right spot, put the two or three different key like. Um, keyframes for where the robot needed to be and uh, how long it should take essentially based on what he would do if he were welding it oh and my God, then, this is literally the the plot to uh the vonnegut novel kurt vonnegut novel player piano where the people train the robots to take them take their jobs yeah he, it, it was very much like that and and then uh they got it working uh and he's like great this weld is good we can move to full automation and it was interesting because the documentary really pointed out this guy's a professional welder and really good at it, and he's a Tesla employee. So he's not welding all the cars anymore. He's teaching the robots how to be excellent welders. And uh, yeah, the, the, then the robots optimize their pathway uh, based on that learning to get perfect welds every single time. So I just thought that was um, a neat little detailed zoom-in example of 
the robot kind of already knew what it was doing, but it needed to be fine-tuned by the human. They <laughs> validated that the weld was good with this human, and then they're like, great, this is kind of ready, and then we need to move on to the next of many hundreds to thousands of welds that we need to make sure the robots are doing perfectly. Robot um, apprentice has become a master. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then one of, the, uh, one of the other interesting pieces was that um, about two to three months before the first delivery was scheduled, uh, they hadn't built the first production car. Now, I believe this was National Geographic being a little bit uh, dramatic um, because it's why, why would you necessarily have had the first car ready months in advance? Um, okay, like, but are it, you saying we can't believe everything we see on television? Exactly. Do not, be, do not believe everything uh, that you, you see. Um, but one of the details they, they described was that they had prototype parts coming through and the robots were were working in prototype parts in sort of their little isolated section because you got to think there's dozens and dozens potentially a hundred different stations that the car will move through throughout the factory and so those can sort of operate in isolation with different teams getting those sections ready but at some point they're all going to need to connect and at some point they're going to have real production parts and not sort of these pre-production parts running through them so they train them on the pre-production parts just to try and get as far ahead as they can but eventually you're going to get those real stamped pieces from the actual presses and so then you have to run the parts through that way and one of the things they noticed was with a few weeks ago they had some real stamped parts come through instead of the pre-production stamp parts and one of the clamps was just off by a millimeter and so it couldn't it, it wouldn't grab the piece and move it into place it would just sort of get stuck and so it wouldn't close all the way and so the, they stopped and then they had all these people from tesla come around and try and figure out exactly what they needed to do and they adjusted it and then it started working again and the welds were better because it was clamped in the correct way and then it got approval from sort of the supervisor to you know move on um so I think that's just sort of a, an illustrative example of what's hap what was sort of happening for the past couple months, most likely, on the, some parts of the production line that were already installed for Model 3, was that they're taking these pre-production parts and running them through little subsections of the assembly line and validating that things are working as the simulations predicted and as they get more and more parts that are more and more exactly like they're going to be in production or even real production parts the things continue to work in the small and in their own little area and then as they start connecting these pieces together they actually start start working and so at one point they ran a full test batch of three cars and to prove that the body assembly could run in automation. And at each step along the way, there were people sort of following those one, that one car as it was being built all the way through the process. And so that takes hours and hours. So they didn't have more cars really behind it. It's not like there were 100 cars going. They want to test one goes through, in this case, three goes through all the way. Then they go to paint. And it took 18 hours to paint it and making sure all the painting is working and it's, you know, the paint heads are going all the way around the body correctly. Uh, and then for the human integrated parts, think about that you've got people who now have to, you know, put in the drive assembly or put in the carpeting or put in the, you know, figure out how to get the seat in. And they may not have done this yet because they've just been trained on what it's going to be like or they've done it other places. But they have a, a set amount of time that they're targeting, like four minutes or two minutes to do this task. And they were showing that they were like double or triple the amount of time it was supposed to take because they're, they're not, they haven't done it before. And so they're getting, you know, putting, putting in the drive shaft or raising in the battery and it's going a lot longer than it should. And so then they get it in, but it's like two or three times as slow as it should be, which means it's going to, this line will operate at a much lower rate than it's designed for. So then that individual human team needs to get more experience with running it. So at the end, they eventually got a car all the way through and that car was, uh, you know, had gone through the full production process and gone through the different robotic steps, but it wasn't, you know, at full speed, but it still ran through the line. And that first car is the car that went to Steve Jurvetson, who's on the board and had the first Model S delivery. And so that's sort of, that's most likely what's just happened with this first black Model 3 for Elon. Well, hopefully with a lot of stuff learned in the interim. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably one of the other really important bits is that uh, Elon mentioned that they have <laughs> certainly learned a lot from the S process, from the X process, as well as just general improvements to their overall staff and capabilities that now they've got, he was saying on their last conference call, which we talked about a bit, but use, useful reiterating in this context that he was like, even when I go over to, as, as Elon Musk, I'm not going to do his uh, voice, even Please as I go... Voice. Even as I go over and look at the Model 3 line, I'm impressed by the number of robots and the advancements. And he's like, you can just tell it's way more advanced than Model S or X. Um, we need a Twitter poll so we can get some some momentum behind demanding that you do the voice. Yeah, I, 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 maybe, maybe. Um, we can hire you a, a vocal coach to do some training on, on doing impressions. So one of <laughs> so. <laughs> So we've got this first car that's now come out. And some of the other things that obviously had been happening, which I felt like were pretty interesting. So on this, I was watching this BMW documentary on the 6 Series, which is sort of their sports car being reintroduced in the late 90s, um, was some of the testing that they were doing ahead of time. Um, so those release candidates were not only testing this this pre-production process and and all the parts for sort of can we assemble the vehicle, but even when it's assembled... Uh, how's it perform? And so they they would do both physical tests and simulated tests. So just a couple examples of the physical tests: um, putting water tanks in the rear seats to simulate people, so filled with hundreds of pounds <laughs> of water, uh, to to load the suspension to the correct amounts. That was kind of neat. Um, we are mostly water. Um, that then they would go out and drive for hundreds of miles in different parts of the country. So they'd go to Death Valley and test it in the heat and like let the car sit for a few hours to heat up and make sure it can start. Obviously this is an internal combustion engine car. So it's got some different thermal dynamics and Tesla's, but Oh, and still, this was not in Germany either. They were doing that here. Yeah. They, they brought the cars to the U S to do that. And then they, then they went to Northern Sweden for cold testing, uh, and traction control testing for a few weeks. And they would go with two or three people, uh, and two or three vehicles and they would take the latest version of the release candidates. So as we saw with Tesla, they, they probably made between 50 and a hundred release candidates for, you know, we saw some of them on the road. Some of them were crash tested. Some of them probably were only kept internally for testing. And so uh, what's interesting about that concept of the, the RCs, which we don't really see because we just see the numbers on the doors, we don't really see the big differences. But one, one kind of example they gave was um, that there were some, the, this was a convertible, and the seals around the convertible uh, top were not quite fitting correctly in the RCs for this BMW they were testing. Uh, it just didn't, it just didn't close correctly and seal correctly for weather, um, in the testing. And so they went back and they had to re-engineer the space for this rag top to go down and, and get a better, more malleable seal, uh, cause in super cold and super hot weather, it didn't perform as expected. So then the engineers come back a couple of weeks later, they update that car to, with this new part. They go test it, and now it's good. And now they've got 50 other cars that have the old part. And so now they have this tension of, are we going to update all the other cars with this new part, pull them off from testing? Or can we say, okay, that car we know doesn't have a good seal, so let's make sure we're not testing like water intrusion and whatnot. They and should so they, have just like cut it out and said no convertibles because they're an abomination. Well, they ended up shipping the convertible later because they had more problems than the uh, hardtop. <laughs> so they they did realize that that caused problems. Um, but it, it's just sort of interesting, even the idea of, okay, you've got this test fleet and you need to update them to make sure that the test drivers are giving feedback on the most recent build, essentially. Right. And then the engineers don't want to uh, be getting feedback from bad builds, but testing doesn't want to be slowed down by not having cars because you have to take them off and retrofit them yeah that's a that's an eye-rolling experience for at least in the software world too when you keep hearing about things that you know are already being fixed or already are fixed and the feedback keeps coming in on that you're like oh god yes that's it's done it's fixed stop talking about it but of course for everyone who's using it it's a new bug they just encountered exactly so you need to be able to communicate that and and uh and why sort of the testing team and production team have to have similar similar goals and expectations and why just producing thousands of these test cars doesn't make sense because a you don't need that many and b it causes problems with updating them to make sure they're sort of running the latest set of changes um not even to mention like how much it costs to make these changes and uh whether or not you can make them in time but 
So those are sort of real world, like complete cars being tested by humans out on the road. And, and Tesla obviously did this for the past three or four months in public that we, we saw. And then internally, similar to what we've heard about in terms of like Apple having this test team where they have like little like Ikea where they just sort of sit on the chair. If you've ever gone to Ikea and seen <laughs> them testing, they have the same exact thing for automotive where one example was uh, the gearboxes. Uh, it would go through all a little robotic arm would move all six gears for two weeks nonstop. And so it went through 320,000 times shifting every gear, which simulated uh, over 300,000 miles. Then they had a seatbelt mechanical finger push on the seatbelt release button 15,000 times, uh, which simulates a year of use. So this is, is this how they get to those like mean time between failures, like uh, metrics that you see the MTBF? Yes, exactly. So they, they're trying to make sure that all the parts they're they're bringing in are going to have a, the expected failure time that both the uh, design from the part manufacturer says and that like parts that are supposed to not wear out don't wear out uh, under the correct times. And one that was really neat that I really am curious if Tesla has was a subsystem for testing the wheels and axle and, and drivetrain. So it was a it was just sort of the uh, not the chassis even just the the uh, the, the front axle because or the rear axle because rear wheel drive, um, and they put it on a simulator that's simulating driving around the Nuremberg 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 Ring, uh, which is a very <laughs> famous racetrack, like a like on a like a treadmill or something. Sort of, it's sort of on a gimbal, like it it's got uh, like a dynamometer. Dynam- uh, dynameter i guess to to let the wheel spin and then also move the right and left wheel uh to simulate going around the turns mm-hmm. as just as like if in the, the latest cars three they have this and uh lightning mcqueen wants to go on the simulator anyways they have the simulator <laughs> so they're exercising like they're the exercising different, it yeah the differential se- yeah exactly and the suspension and also the gear shifting at 70 and it's like 70 turns and then they showed it at the end and all the, the tires were like shredded because it was it was basically to the to the the, the 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 wheels and the transmission and the suspension as if it had actually gone on the nuremberg ring at this crazy high speed um so it's just sort of interesting seeing all these little subsystems being tested as well and obviously tesla has been doing this as well because in the last earnings release they also mentioned that they were in final validation of their subsystems which would be things like this um so you can just imagine the uh, motors being spun up and tested at these crazy crazy rpms and running for hours and hours and hours trying to overheat them and trying to you know break things and overheat the battery and pushing the cooling and uh uh in jaguar has some interesting stuff about what they do they've got f- huge freezers and huge heat areas where they'll put the car and heat it up and cool it down way beyond what you'd see on earth uh to test when it breaks and when things really start failing uh for the seals for the door handles for the engine starting up and off and so even though we didn't see many teslas uh, model threes being tested in cold weather um that that doesn't mean they couldn't test in um, in these sort of freezing and, and heating chambers with uh, uh, these simulators. So um, right. I, I wouldn't be afraid that we didn't see a lot of um, icy north testing of the Model Three out in the real world. That sounds like a pretty fun job setting all that stuff up. Yeah, it did seem sort of neat. And they also do their own internal crash testing, and they do crash testing with those third parties we talked about in the last episode ahead of time, because uh, obviously they can do simulations, but they want to ensure it's actually how it will perform with the real crash test. So they, they do that. And those crash test dummies can cost $100,000 each. Really? Um, yeah. They, they can be reused, um, but each one is tested, uh, is, is about $100,000 for each dummy. And the other thing that was interesting was realizing that they have to calibrate and test the dummy before they crash it. So they'll use like a pendulum with this really huge heavy weight to ensure <laughs> that it is recording correctly. So just sort of, again, rem- remembering that like testing things is a really uh, specific and, and scientific process. It's not just sort of like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. Like that. <laughs> That button is going to be no problem. This is this is real engineering, not like software engineering where you can just fix it with a patch later. Like this is real stuff. So the uh, one one example as well for BMW is that they they talked about this pilot plant. So with a, a big manufacturer like BMW, where they've got lots of different plants similar to what like a grocery store will do where they've got like their their sample store at headquarters where they'll test new layouts and things. Uh, they'll build a pilot production plant in mini uh 
at Munich, which is their headquarters, and they'll bring uh, the key foreman of the plant where the car will actually be manufactured to this pilot plant to learn how to make the car so then they can teach their team. Like when you say mini, do you mean like like a dollhouse? No, or? sorry. Uh, it is it is the key things f- uh, that are going to be unique to this car. So they don't need to they don't need to recreate like the paint booth or um, sort of some of the conveyors. But oh, okay. key points so it's not where, scaled like, down. It's just less components. Yeah, exactly. So w- some of the key junctions where uh, this car differs materially from some of the other cars they're making. Okay. Uh, they'll show how that works, and so they'll do the production processes. Um, but, uh, you know, with the engineers who design them there to make sure things work, uh, to learn how they, you know, how it all works. And this happens just a few months before the full production starts. Um, and those first cars that start getting made in that are called pre-series in the BMW language. So I'm pretty sure that's actually what the release candidates were for Tesla. Um, and this is when they start to actually do sort of the final testing um, where they'll start bringing the car into uh, Antioch chambers, which are like silent chambers to test with microphones all around the car and inside the car with sound engineers and acoustical engineers inside to listen for vibrations and noise and had this neat example where they, one of the test engineers on the road had noticed this vibration, but couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So then they put the release candidate car into this uh, chamber where it's silent and they run the car and they've got a microphone, sort of like a, um, like a metal detector. And he's sort of running, he's got headphones on and he's running it around the car, trying to hear the sound and he, <laughs> he finds it and it's in the glove compartment. And then he digs in the glove compartment. And he realizes that the, this one sort of one of the pistons that sort of releases the glove compartment, makes it nice and smooth there when it's compressed, it's rattling a little bit. So then they, they've identified this part and then they go back to engineering and within a week or two, they've got a, a revised version of that part Wait, so that so it was, doesn't was vibrate. That, that was the BMW documentary? That was the BMW one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, Tesla didn't have many examples of things they fixed, um, in the documentary. Uh, so this is just sort of a flavor of the types of things that have been rooted out and what's interesting is how many little things they found that seemed really minor like a little like one of the other examples i gave was a uh, we, that we saw was like a a speaker that the final speaker from the uh, uh sort of supplier was like half a millimeter too tall and so the speaker grill from another manufacturer didn't fit so they had to then redesign that and make sure you know have a new one come and fit but <laughs> like all these tiny little details of all these different parts that are coming and, and, you know, everything has its own little bit of tolerance. And how do you make sure all of that comes in line? And I think what was, it was intriguing is that the Ford process is about three months from uh, sort of when design is done to when they typically are ready to go to production. The Chevy process was a, li- a little bit longer, but about three, three and a half, four months. So Tesla isn't out of whack here with that, but the process to then spin up the manufacturing fully might actually is usually um, is a little different. And so we can talk about that, but I just wanted to end on the release candidate side of, of just sort of saying like, it, they know there, there are still issues and all the major manufacturers and all these films talked about it's really just a call of when do we think the, the majority of the major issues are solved because they're always going to be little changes and improvements along the, as they go, but they have to make some point when it's ready to go. And this is clearly very analogous to our world of software where... <laughs> you need a release candidate at some point. Yeah, there's never bug-free software. So you just have to make some call when it's good enough and it's, it passes that bar, uh, internal bar you have for quality and different manufacturers will have different bars and there'll be different factors influencing it. But Tesla has now passed that point. And so the difference between the last release candidate they made and this first serial number one, probably almost nothing, but it's the symbolic movement to now we're producing cars that we're going to sell to people, which is, uh, the, the big difference. All right, so let's let's dive into then the the full production of the Model Three. Like, what what are they dealing with there? Yep. So we know now that the first car has come off the line, and there will be subsequently around probably thirty ish uh, for the rest of this month. So another twenty ish, twenty five days or so. Yeah, that's right. Um, until do you think the they're waiting to get? Do you think they're waiting to get any feedback on this first one before they keep more coming down, or are they just? Do you think they're just kind of? One is out and then number two is coming right on its tail. 
Yeah, so I expect that everything, every testing criteria they have that they could run a car through to validate that it's correct, they are going to run this car on. And one of the other things I found out in the research is that um, many manufacturers have a process for testing cars for quality control that can take like a day or two or three days. But they obviously don't run every car through it because it takes too long. So what they'll do is similar to like food process where you'll take one sample to the lab to test to make sure like the quality is still there, the flavors are still there, like to to a control. Like spot checking? Yeah, spot checking. That they'll sort of pull a car off the line and and spot check it and test that everything is lining up correctly and, and do all the sound checks and rattle checks and everything. My hunch is that they're probably going to be doing that with these first five or 10 cars, which so they'll get way more of a once over than the regular cars will get on a day to day basis uh, to make sure everything on the production side is coming out correctly. And there'll probably be some things that are not quite perfect that they'll continue to refine and either fix those cars or just fix like fix the process. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons it's going to be relatively slow is, well, why can't they just flip the switch and make this thing go at 5,000 cars uh, a week? Um, <laughs> and the prob- there's many problems with that. But just from the production side, uh, it's p- very possible that right now there are still small adjustments that need to be made, e- even in the robotic side, to get it where they want and continue tuning things. The team who's actually still humans involved in the process probably can't operate at that speed yet. The process is to ingest the parts from the suppliers and put them in the right spots probably is not honed yet or even fully implemented yet because they know they don't need to be able to handle that yet. And the parts manufacturers are still not capable of producing and delivering all the parts they need. And as Elon mentioned, they've built up cap- capa- uh, capabilities internally to produce parts that suppliers are missing. And so they may be making some parts for these first cars that certain suppliers have failed to deliver on, but they're willing to do that for 30 or 100 cars. But obviously they can't do that for thousands of cars. So there's they only so, have so many 3D printers. Yeah. I mean, they <laughs> with Model X, apparently it was like three or four parts that were holding up production for months. And they just didn't have the capability internally to make those. So they were just totally, uh, you know, held hostage, as, as it were, by this supplier who couldn't produce the parts for them. And you've got thousands of other parts that are all there ready to go. And if you have a couple pieces, even one piece that you can't make and you need, you can't make the car. And I think that's a really underappreciated aspect to all this is it's so different than, um, than, than many industries where you can sort of still ship something incomplete that a car can't miss, can't be missing a bolt. It can't be missing a, a you know, a, or, a wire or connector. Yeah. Probably something more specific than a, than a bolt where you could go to another manufacturer. There's probably some choke points where there are right. only very few people that make a certain thing. Right. And so that's why Tesla wants to try and make sure they have the capability to fill in those little pieces that maybe you could go to someone else, but they're not ready to, you know, you can't just necessarily go down to the hardware store and get, but you could get a contract with someone else, but they're, you know, that takes some time to get up and running as well. So, um, so yeah, to your earliest question, I do think that they'll be, te- they'll be building more. Obviously they've got 20 days to try and build another 25 or 30 cars, but at the rate of one or two a day, they can get they can get there and it sort of alleviates a lot of the pressure of running it quickly and they can really have as many members of the team inspecting all these cars inspecting every part of the process and it's also very likely there are parts of the line that aren't fully operational uh for the full speed process but they're they've put in the processes that you need so for instance the body in white part uh so you've got the the car panels coming together uh being welded now how do how do those individual pieces of the side panel and the undercarriage and the top how do those get to those robots now it's very possible that the the robotics and the conveyors that take those parts from the stamping are not in place and humans are driving them over with a forklift and putting them into the robot's arm right so <laughs> humans are the are the spackle that's kind of smoothing over the process right now yeah exactly so if, if i were thinking about how you would have to you know get the the critical path to making a car there are going to be certain areas of the process that are required 
for really making sure that the car is produced well, like the welding and all that. But how the part gets into the arm of the welding robot is kind of not an important bit to the functional quality of that car, if that makes sense, as long as you don't dent it or whatever. So you could imagine that there's lots of intermediate steps that are being filled in with humans or less efficient robotics or less efficient conveyors and whatnot. And as they continue to ramp up, those other parts will then become the next most important things to tune and install and make sure are running. Um, so that's the other reason why they may not be, it's probably not possible for them to run it a thousand cars a week, even if they had every part and they had every desire to. And I, I think that the main reason people should be uh, believing that is they have so many pre-orders that if they could sell those cars instantly, they would. They're not dumb. So <laughs> there's some reason why they're not. And I don't think it's just for fun or because they're lazy. I, if you assume they're working as hard as they can and they're doing everything as smartly as they possibly can, given what they know, then there, there's logical reasons why they can't produce thousands and thousands of cars. And no one produces thousands of thousands of cars on the very first day. Like no manufacturer does that. And it's because you, you can't start that way. It's just not <laughs> possible to just turn on this massive machine and it all works instantly. Yeah, at least no manufacturer that's staying in business does it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so one of the other things I found kind of interesting was this um, talk about uh, the amount of automation and the amount of simulation. So one of the reasons Elon gave for why they were able to have so much confidence in the Model 3 shipping on time. And I, I do think stepping back, we kind of jumped into it, but... If we were when we started the podcast, we had just that announcement of the Model Three, and he said on stage, "I feel pretty confident we're going to actually hit that date of shipping sometime towards the end of 2017." And I remember after that event that there were so many articles of people saying, "Oh, don't even count on it till you know even shipping until 2018." And there were so many analogies to the Model X being multiple years late and the Model S being late that, of course, Tesla is a company that's late. And I do think that this is a, a really strong indication that something we've been talking about throughout this entire year that Tesla producing the Model 3 on schedule is almost more important than the actual product capabilities of the Model 3 because it what they showed is desirable because obviously many many people uh subscribed and like wanted to buy that car with the level of detail that they knew so they didn't need to go crazy with some amount of crazy new features they just needed to make that thing and they've had a year knowing they have hundreds of thousands of people who want to buy this car so demand is not the, the concern. They also know they have a whole new part of the factory that they're going to be using. So the disruption to their current business is not very high. And the other thing is they, unlike a lot of manufacturers, so if you think about like a brand new Camry, the 2018 Camry comes out, you can't be like not selling Camrys for a day. Like that's a, that'd be a really bad thing if you can't sell a Camry. So they have to make this transition from the 2017s to the 2018. And when they say they're like in production of 2018 model, they have to really be able to meet that demand of all their dealerships. So their, their interest is to really keep the car as secret as possible for as long as possible so that it doesn't Osborne and people, people stop buying the, the 2017s. Do you think there's really that much of a demand for the next generation Camry? <laughs> people well, are going to stop buying the current Camry? Well, I think what happens is once they have that new model, th they have to start discounting the old one. So the more that they have still making the 2017s, the more problematic. And also... If you know the 2018 is available and they start the marketing campaign, they need to be able to deliver those around the country. It's not like California gets the new 2018 Camry and the rest of the country has to wait for a year. So Tesla has this unique opportunity where they actually get to ramp up production publicly. And that's a little bit different than a lot of manufacturers where they'll have this pilot production, which they don't really ship to, to customers right away. They kind of get going. And that first three or four months like Tesla's doing they actually just sort of let those cars sit um, because they need to get to the throughput of a few thousand cars a week before they actually start letting customers buy them because then the next week they need to be able to have thousands of cars available. So Tesla is actually kind of 
doing this more publicly and selling these earlier cars faster. But I don't think it materially means the cars are worse. I think the cars will be very similar. It's just that the manufacturing pace will be a lot higher, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. They're they're not migrating a, an existing model. They're kind of coming up with something new. Right, so, so they, they don't have to worry about people not getting access to the car, uh, and they don't have to sort of hide or camouflage the car because it's, it's brand new. It's like when the first <laughs> iPhone was announced, they, you could, as soon as it was announced, Steve Jobs started using it because it's not going <laughs> to stop people from buying a Mac. Yeah, I mean, the mo- what we've seen, the Model 3 is like the worst camouflage vehicle ever, if that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, 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 exactly. And one of the, one of the other things um, I was going to mention was that the uh, the level of automation, well, the the level of sort of simulation that's possible these days, relative to even 2012 when they started the Model S program, was uh, like companies like Siemens and the companies that produce the the Falk robots and the Kuka robots, they have software and public descriptions of the software they make, and obviously they're promoting it, but uh, like examples of car companies coming to them and saying, hey, we want to produce this new car in this new factory. And they've got these case studies online of how they will build in simulation with their robotic engineers what the entire production line is going to look like. And one example was this Volvo plant where they have this photo of uh, the the welding section for one of the, the the body panel areas. And it shows like the multiple robots with the welding heads on and the piece in the jig in front of it and then the sort of uh, mesh and line behind it and the conveyor belts and it's all this 3d simulated thing and then they show another photo right below it of when the line was actually created and the photo is almost exactly the same (laughs) and and they just sort of talk about how they're producing and optimizing and designing what the entire line is going to be how these robots are going to move how they're going to interact all in simulation in the software and so that when they're actually installed, they know exactly where they're going, and then the robots basically need to be calibrated and fine-tuned, but they're kind of already, they already know what's going to happen. So right. it's, it's not like you're designing your deck for your backyard and like, oh, let's just put a deck in here and you just start building it. <laughs> it's like they know exactly in 3D what is going to be happening, and it's already been programmed, and then installation is more about making sure you're putting things in the right place, similar to like doing a skyscraper versus like a you know, a domestic home. It's, it's just the level of planning is so much more precise uh, in advance. Yeah. It sounds like at, at that point, the, the simulation is sort of the standard and what you're doing at after the, in the real world is kind of uh, compensating for the installation defects where, you know, it might've been installed a millimeter off or something because, you know, that the installation process is probably where some small errors are going to be introduced. Yeah, exactly. Right. Where you've got uh, the, even the ability to sort of model the physics in 3d now is so, so advanced that, uh, what, yeah, what's going to happen in the real world will be temperature variations or this thing was installed slightly off, or there's some vibration that's unaccounted for, or, you know, the part comes in and it's a colder day and it's shrunk a little bit. So or your yeah, factory so big, you didn't account for the curvature of the earth. Right. Yeah. Or, or sort of airflow or whatever, like s- small things that need to be adjusted, but fundamentally they can run this thing. And the way we know that this is happening with Tesla is two reasons. One, they've said so on these earnings calls where people at the, the analysts will ask, well, how is model three coming in? This is before this first car has been produced. And Elon said like, it's coming in as the simulations projected. It's coming in uh, sort of right on the bullseye. And I didn't fully grasp what he meant by that until doing all this research and really understanding that he had mentioned that they have the Gigafactory all in CAD. And so they know exactly how it's all laid out. And so they're really just sort of building to that model, as you mentioned. And so for them, they kind of know where the end state is. And it's just a matter of sort of filling in those gaps versus discovering, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we put a robot over there? That'd be better. No, (laughs) that's not what's happening. It's not sort of random. Like, oh, you know, this line is a little short. Like we could put a couple more robots in here that it's very, very precisely designed. Well, until until Elon gets a on a whim, starts a, a company to build Star Trek's replicator, and yeah. that can that can just sort of fill in all the the gaps. I, one one last example before we sort of wrapped up, I, I found really intriguing was um, this idea of uh, quality control. And if you watch some of these videos, um, 
you'll see there's a lot of humans touching the cars and running their hands across the car. And uh, it, there, there's just a lot of this sort of uh, fetishes, fetishizing of, of like humans quality t- <laughs> t- touching and caressing cars. That knowing caress of the expert craftsman. Yeah. I, th- th- that actually isn't, that's a really not good way to, to do a lot of this. Like, But it's it, a good way to sell it to other humans. Yeah. But th- you just think about it, it's like this guy's sort of running his hand up and down the car being, oh yeah, it's smooth, and then moves on. And every time I see these and the narrators would be like, these craftsmen are ensuring that everything's perfect. I'm like, no, 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 that is not ensuring it's perfect. That is not what they do at SpaceX to make sure that the rocket is perfect. It's like running their hands on the inside of this, you know. Oh, come on. That's what Geppetto did to make sure his wooden boy was perfect. Oh man. It's really funny. So I think that there's mainly a deficiency of testing processes because when you then research how they test these things when they actually have to validate that things are correct they don't have humans do it they have robots do it the problem is the robots are so slow at doing it they can't do it on every car so they've created this narrative that humans doing it is better why so why are the robots slow so the robots are slow because they've typically used physical touching of the of the vehicles and like, like giant robot calipers or something. Yeah. Giant robot calipers, giant robot, uh, like little prongs that touch and measure the distance of things sort of as if you were modeling something in 3d. Uh-huh. Um, and the challenge is to do that. Uh, th- they're sort of general purpose. So you kind of have to have a human operator manipulating them around the car and, uh, and, or install sensors in the line, but each sensor usually is, you'd have to have thousands of them and they're not, great so anyways the big advances that have happened is that you can now do this in a touchless way using uh the technology that we usually talk about in a very different context of lidar so uh laser laser sort of radar technology of uh using laser light to inspect the distance and measure uh the surface of the car and so now what they're doing is uh, companies like nikon and others have in the past few years created these lidar scanning devices for automotive and so they'll take a part uh, a part will sort of come onto the line and they will be able to measure it precisely to uh you know hundredths of a millimeter uh to make sure that this part is in spec and to make sure that the entire car so, so after it's been welded and all the parts are on to measure like the panel gaps that humans would have to run calipers through now they can measure it with lidar and to your earlier point they have a cad model of what this car is supposed to be and because it's scanning it it builds a 3d model of it so it's in the same sort of uh 3d space as the actual reference vehicle. And so there's no translation uh, of that 3D space. It's just native. This is what the 3D mo- generates a 3D model, which then it compares to a 3D model. And what's neat is you can install these on those same robotic KUKA arms. So then the, the arms move around the car. And so the LIDAR, instead of spinning in a little Kentucky chicken bucket on the top of the car, <laughs> is mounted phys- like solidly on these arms and they move up and down the car and around it and they can go inside of it. So you can build and so they can do this really, really fast. So every single car could be theoretically tested. And the thing really made me believe Tesla must be doing this or investigating it is that this is used in rocket manufacturing because obviously the tolerances for rocketry is extremely high. And so they're going to be using the most advanced technology to measure things to make sure they're precise because you don't want any mess ups there in tolerances. (laughs) And so that idea that the SpaceX technology being brought to Tesla and realizing you can't have for, for, for the alien dreadnought, you can't have people running their hand along a metal uh, stamping to make sure that it's smooth. You can't have humans touching the paint to make sure that there's no gaps or having people running their finger along the, the trunk and opening and closing it to make sure it feels like it's closing correctly. Like that no. is not going to fly. So Geppetto is the bottleneck. Yeah, exactly. So you can't have humans in that process. So Tesla is really going to be pushing on this testing and quality control, which makes me so excited because it means the actual quality of the cars are going to go and be better. And and Elon even said that the release candidates are better than the production versions of the Model S and X have been because they're just produced to higher quality standards and there's more robotics (laughs) and more automation, which remove the human element of fewer humans, fewer humans making, you know, 
bad judgments and uh, needing tolerances because they can't hit, hit it every time. Like one example of the glass roof, they have a camera takes a photo of, of the opening and finds the piece of glass that's most accurately going to fit that opening. So all the glass roofs are the same size, right, in air quotes, but every part has a slight tolerance, right, a slight, slightly bigger, slightly smaller. So they can take a photo of the roof for this particular car and try and find the glass roof that's best going to fit it, and they put the ceiling around it, and they position it perfectly uh, with the robot and so that it doesn't slide around. And so it means that it can have a less smaller reveal and be more perfect put on and the right amount of pressure and the right amount of sealant so it doesn't you know overfill or overflow or anything like that and it's just like yes that is that is i want to know that's happening i'm very excited to be able to go on a tour at some point soon and see this new advanced (laughs) production system hint 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 um so yeah the first car is being made i there have been people made has been made yes has been made there are more being made i bet there's at least one or two more and <laughs> seems like a safe bet. It's it's just it's very exciting knowing this is happening and digging into the production process and the, the testing process to have made the determination that the first batch is ready to go uh, gives me a lot of confidence that the things they wanted it to achieve it has achieved and now the types of bugs that will be happening are. I expect quite minor unless they're catastrophically large. Like, I don't think it's going to be medium <laughs> things. Like, does that make sense? Like, I think there'll be yeah. something, if there's something that goes wrong, it'll be so big that it, it, it was unforeseeable and there'll be enough small little things that they believe they can work them out in the first few thousand cars that are most likely production issues, either on the supplier side or on their side, but not fundamentally flawed. Like, well, it just doesn't hit zero to 60 in 5.6 seconds. So oops, <laughs> like doesn't seem like that's possible. <laughs> so have you updated your internal estimation of when your particular Model 3 will be available to you? Well, it depends on what I'm willing to compromise on for the car because the the, the simpler the version Let's I'm assume you're to going accept. for for earliest possible Model 3. <sighs> well, I don't want the I don't want the black interior which I believe is what the default will be. Um and so I think that's going to be my long pull item is if they offer a white interior, I want that. And I don't believe that will happen instantly. So I'm still hoping for before Christmas. I I Mm. think that's still possible. I do think I was probably in the first 20,000 people in California to get a reservation in. You think Sir Santa Elon's going to come through for you? I do. I think it's very possible. uh, But I certainly am not expecting September, October, or November. My current mental model is December. Uh, so you, and I, I will know more when they open up the configurator for me. But it, all right, so you've you've made the 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 determination though that you're going to hold out for something closer to what you want and not just get the earliest possible Model Three you can and say that the smaller details don't matter as much as having a Model Three. That is my current belief, but it, I believe it might change. <laughs> that might have been a little bit of a, a push pull question right there. Ourselves. Yeah, I'm still I'm still open to going for the the simplest first version if it means many many months more waiting all right because it may be that that first few months is actually just internal employees anyways so the fundamental difference of me waiting another week or two is really not that big of a difference because it it may be they're going to introduce these new options in the first round of real customer orders which also just happens to sync up with december if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. there's nothing i could really do anyways but the first few hundred or first few thousand are actually going to be all configured the same way, but those are all going to go internally anyways. It's the question, if they don't start adding white seats and uh, like the smaller battery until the first quarter of next year, then maybe I'll decide to go for the bigger battery in the black interior. <laughs> all right. So that is my current belief. So um, this change, but yeah, good to know. So upcoming, we have the, uh, the release event happening on the 28th. So I don't expect much will happen between now and then. I don't think people will actually be delivered cars. I don't think you'll see them driving around. I think you'll still see the release candidates because it's still valuable for them to keep trying to find any little issues they can. But fundamentally, we just the next big event is the 28th. And I don't expect anything else to happen before then. And then on the 2nd, August 2nd, we believe they'll have their earnings and conference call. So it'll be a busy week. Do you think they're at all worried that people who are early on the list and getting like the first few serial numbers here 
are actually just going to stash them in a garage somewhere and think they're going to be valuable rather than people are going to drive them around and give them feedback. Do you think there's any sort of any sort of uh, intention there? I, I don't think so. I don't think the early Roadsters or Model S people just garage them. Um, and I don't see why these would be that much more valuable uh, than the S's or Roadsters. Like, so I don't, I don't think so. And I think the first people who reserved them do really just want them. I, I don't think they're going to just garage them. I, like serial number 400, I, I don't think it's fundamentally that much better until you get 50 years from now and maybe it's worth something. But What about 404? <laughs> 404 might be interesting. 1,300, sorry, 1,337 might be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> 420. Yeah, exactly. Uh, three, 314 might be interesting. Um, 31,415. Yeah, that one also. <laughs> just, keep, just keep going on those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Three, nine. Those, those right. are really good ones. I think we're officially out of interesting things to say. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. So, if anyone uh, wants to reach us, uh, where can they where can they do so? Yeah, you can tweet at us on Twitter at the Tesla Show. Uh, you can visit our website theteslashow.com to see our episodes and commentary there. And if you use Reddit, you can message us and see our posts and discuss with us at r slash the Tesla Show. Excellent. And with that, I'll talk to you later, Mike. Adieu. Adieu.